put in the flesh that comes from sin so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles must do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drunken parties, and all its devilry. With respect to those who are despised in the world, they in the world show themselves despicable to men their own nature. But they will give account of him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that they judge in the flesh the way he judges. They may live in the spirit the way God does. Pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning and uh, for your stuff on your word. And I pray that in it we would receive your wisdom, that we would better understand our own suffering, uh, that we would understand that Christ himself is not that suffering in our lives. Turn into your word, open it to our hearts and minds.
will also bring it to completion. This is your life in faith. But you must also, as a human being who inhabits space and time in the encasement of flesh, you must be resolved to persevere. This will mean for you that you must make choices in your life. You must fight sinful habits. Not simply maintain them and live well with them. But you need to seem to eliminate them by making good choices. In order to make those choices, it will require that you be prayerful and dependent upon the Spirit of God to empower those choices that you yourself as a person of discipline must make. You are not simply subject to your body. In many ways, the self-discipline you can master. Many among us, God say few among us, as we consider the Olympics, displays of mastery. Um, being able to tell your body no yeah. And often, uh, Christians will choose not to do so because it fears legalism. That's why the text says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this is the, the language, arm yourself with the same manner of thinking. The text being there, a fair translation for Paul. It was the young Jonathan Edwards, and many of you have read that. If not, go ahead and take time. Read his 70 resolutions. Jonathan, uh, young Jonathan Edwards, wrote this picture of resolutions uh, totaling 70 at the time. I don't know if they were expanded later or not. I believe it's 70, but it could go a little bit further. But between the ages of 18 and 19 years old. So remember, at the age in which this young man is deciding, if I'm going to survive here in New York, in the life that is, is coming at me, I need to figure out how to discipline myself for a life of faithfulness to God. The preface is key to understanding the reading of the resolution. You can take them and read them, but, but again, remember the In the preface, Jonathan Edwards writes this, quote, Being sensible, as we read, uh, or as we sang a few moments ago, help our unbelief. If you were listening to the lyrics, you learned that from us here, and you were of this morning. Edwards, on the resolution, in the preface, quote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat Him, by His grace, to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. But you see, the godly dependence upon the Spirit to inflame and empower the ability to carry them through did not prevent Him striving. Decisions are to be made. Progress in Christ is difficult. There are three great enemies to historically considered to the soul. Three of them, of which they are ancient and they remain and they will forever abide because they do make sense. They are true of Jesus. Study through Scripture. The three great enemies of the soul, you know them well. The flesh, the world, and the devil. All three waging war against your resolution. Against your sense of progress in Christ as a pilgrim. Notice the text, you'll see it, verse 2, as you consider, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. 
your one enemy, no longer uh, in the flesh for human passion, but for the will of God. Again, one of the great enemies of your soul and progress in Christ is your own human passion. You must consider them. Notice your weakness. It's many different than another man, another man. So, know thyself. And wage war upon your flesh. The world, the other one, and you see it in the text uh, following right after that verse 3, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And Gentiles there is language of worldliness, language of unbelief. And what is it they want to do? They want to live in sensuality, passion, struggle, orgy, struggle, party, so the law of idolatry. Just, again, not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of the world and its challenge to each other. And then finally, the third challenge, the measure of resolve, to follow Christ and face hardship for his name is the devil. Peter gets this later. I'm sure you've heard this first reference in your lifetime. But chapter 5, if you look down at verse 8, be sober-minded. Again, it's the same theme of chapter 4. Christ suffers. Arm yourself. Be active. Now, be resolved. To Peter, verse 8, be sober-minded. And then he adds, be watchful, alert. For the third and great enemy of the soul, your adversary, the devil. Sober-minded and watchful because of trials around. And then the imagery of how you are to conceive of the threat level is he trials around, but what is the threat level? A, a roaring lion uh, who is seeking someone to divide. Yet, perhaps, I think this is what is implied in the text here in verse Peter, perhaps what will aggravate your resolve. Let's say as a believer, you establish uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, I want to have this same manner of resolve in my life. I do, I do want this. I, I want to say no to this and yes to this. I, I know I need to push my body to, to give it the best shape, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically, to be a person of discipline. And let's say perhaps uh, you do. What will aggravate your resolve? Is implied there is because uh, there's some measure of venom by 
good. I have got finances. And what I might have. You see, the access point to ethics and position really is by the way of the Bible. It's not just simply being good at Consider this text in the relational web that's offered there. You are no longer the person of those things. Look at verse 3 just briefly. The time is past. Suffice it for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You're, you're not that person. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You're not the person of verse 3 anymore. And those who remain at home in the flood of debauchery, those who otherwise know will continue to align with for no longer participate with them. And the response needs to be one God will not will. The response will be, well, are they ever going to be judged? Yes. But it's not how they Notice that the text brings a consolation in verse 5. Just this morning. But they will give an account him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, they don't give an account to me, though it is me that they heard. It is not me whom they give an account, but let that not move you to think, therefore, they don't give an account. Um, the question about judgment, I want to clarify this morning just briefly with you, uh, is who will be doing the judgment exactly? When it, when it says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The question before us, just for a couple of moments, who will be doing the judging exactly? If we put together the various New Testament texts, as we've confessed this morning in the Apostles' Creed as well, if we put together the various texts of the New Testament together, you see a principle emerge that's important for us to understand regarding final judgment. First principle to consider in terms of who is it exactly that will be doing the end-time judging? The first principle of the New Testament is this. God the Father and God the Son share authority in judgment. There's a shared authority in the Trinity and a shared authority between the Father and the Son in executing judgment on those who dwell on the earth. Again, he shares in the judgment for the Father. John 5. And I give this to you simply because, again, if you were to read various statements, whether it's in Peter or you look earlier in Peter and you see that Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father who will judge justly. So is it God the Father who is then judging all flesh? Is it God the Son who seems to be here? Is it God the Son that we read in the Gospel? Who's doing the judging exactly and most precisely? If we put together the various statements of the New Testament, we see there is a shared authority between the Father and the Son in judgment. I offer you one simple test for that to understand how judgment is working and who it is that is executing the judgment. John 5 says this. Jesus says this, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is true. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of God. 
Christian authority. Thirdly, if you look at First Peter, how we're learning about him who will judge the living and the dead, we find out once again it is Christ in this picture after the resurrection. Notice, look at the text with me of chapter three as we move towards chapter four and understand who it is that judges the living and the dead. In chapter three, we work through the baptismal text, verse twenty-one. He says, "For a good conscience." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, you recall, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been what? Subjected to. That is, indeed, the Son shares in the judgment authority of the Father, but he is appointed judge by the So after the resurrection, Christ ascends
insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, again, back to affliction, back to hardship. Why? How can I rejoice? Because that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, if you consider judgment in the day of judgment, it is inevitable. It's a question of, of when, not if. To the Christian right now, if your hope resides in Christ and Christ alone, you have set your hope and your faith squarely upon Him for total and absolute deliverance. Judgment is not meant to serve you here. But hope, the hope in Christ based upon His work. That's what the ascension is about. Jesus, 
parallelism here in this text. The pilgrim on the way. A way to strengthen our faith. Not only to assure that as injustice occurs in this life, and it's bound to continue, no matter how we protest, injustice will continue. The hope of the believer is that it will finally be that. But surely, God will cast this out of the Even the people who are particularly perhaps hurt us very deeply and those who don't care as much as we are. That we might, those who might look at these individuals and think nothing ever befalls them, and the people around us are feeling more deeply.
with those here that we offer to God, that we offer to you, thank you for your example. Please take us and bring us the rest of life for all that you ask us. Save us and all of us from you. This is why the judgment awaits. This is why the gospel is preached. Those who are eating that now, that though they suffer the afflictions of all mankind, all of us will die. Judge the way we are in the flesh. We will die. Yet when we live like that, we will see. Again, somewhat straightforward as we don't approach the text so cryptically. Peter says, although they share, each of us will share in the common life of all mankind. We will all physically die, yet will we live in the spirit realm. Why? Because God's promises will hold true. Justice and hope cannot serve as a badge of godly virtue. The parallelism is that so often must be told to be assured that his promises will come true. In conclusion to the text, I want to read Calvin's comment on it, and then I want to give you two final observations. Calvin beautifully captures the thought of God. He says, we see here that death does not hinder Christ from always being our defense. It is remarkable consolation for God's people. But death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Even if Christ does not appear literally in this life, yet his redemption is not or will not fail. For his power is perfect. 
expectations that we would have of him. There's a cost to having a father in the Why do we 